Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer. I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me as always this week is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. How's it hanging, John? <laughs> it's going great, Ian. I don't know how many of the really early episodes you listen to, but Steve would always do that to me. Every week, he would do the little intro bit and he would ask me a different question and I was never ready to answer it. <laughs> um, so I think I'm going to start doing that to you from now on. That's all so, good. Um, okay, so this week, uh, this is a popular topic. This is one that kind of often gets requested. And it's one of those subjects that there's a risk that you forget to cover it. Because when you do this, when you're working mastering every day, day in, day out for years, you kind of forget that it's still something that is not obvious to other people, which is how to prepare for submitting your music to a mastering engineer if you want to have your music mastered professionally. And if that's not you, uh, don't switch off right now because pretty much all the points we're going to cover are also completely relevant if you're mastering your own music as well. What do you need to do when you're submitting music to a mastering engineer? What's the best way to do that? What's the best way to get uh, great results? John, anything spring to your mind when you hear that question? Actually, I get this question a lot, and I'm just going through my notes right now. Um, I'm sure that I wrote down the last email that I uh, that I replied to for this question. Pre-mastering, what do I need to make sure that my track has, or all those kinds of things before I send it to you? I think we did kind of talk about some of the common problems. So it's just sort of like double check these things before you send it to us. I'll let you go first with the what the most important one is. Okay, that's cool. You have a lot more experience with this. You see a lot more well, masters every day. So, the, I mean, in, t in terms of what's the most important, that's a tricky one. But I've got a few things here. And what I've done is I've split them into a kind of three groups. So there's what I would say are the essentials where if you get these things wrong, you basically can't proceed with the mastering. Um, then there's kind of the details, which are important, but not sort of deal breakers. And then there are the things that I think it's it's good to have ticked the boxes and got things right, but it's not kind of essential. Um, and the first one that I have in the, in the kind of crucial category, which is probably so simple that nobody needs to hear it, but maybe not, um, is just to name the tracks correctly. Um, and in a way that is intelligible to the mastering engineer, you know, ideally I like tracks to come as though they've been ripped from a CD. So starting with, you know, zero one, zero two, zero three, um, and then the full title, you know, it's in this day and age, uh, I mean, I, I have a friend who always gives me a hard time because I'm still in the habit of putting underscores instead of spaces in the names of files, because that goes back to my, my DOS days when you, you couldn't have, you know anything unless it was an alphanumeric character. These days, that's not necessary. You can have apostrophes in, in titles if you need them. And then I would say as little on the end in terms of kind of dates and final, final, this is the one, no, really, this is the one. <laughs> yeah. That kind of stuff, you know, just because that makes the names super long. It's not like that's a problem, but if, if you have the time to just edit the names a little bit, um, and, you know, kind of make them right. That's all good. So we probably don't need to say anything more about that unless you have any pet peeves um, in that area. Um, and ideally, you, yeah, you put them in the right order that they're going to be on the CD. I mean, you should be 100% sure of the order before you send it off to mastering. Unless it's a single, then you don't need to worry about the number. But definitely 
the name, make sure the mastering engineer knows the artist's name, and and you're probably going to get into all the metadata next. Right? Yeah, well, you you kind of led into the second point there, which is it is the running order. I mean, if if the tracks say zero, one, two, three, all the rest of it, that's good. Um, sometimes people get that wrong by mistake, or they've changed their mind at some point, and there's uh-huh. some kind of confusion. So I also like to have, in fact, I need a full track list with all of the spellings checked, the full song titles, with you know, kind of any quirky stuff that you might be doing, correct capitalization, all that kind of stuff so that I can check it, because that's going to be included. Um, I mean, pretty much every job I do, I supply a DDP master, which is something we've talked about before. And that, yeah, has the metadata in there. So that information gets included on the CD. And if you put it in one of the one in 10 players that actually reads it, it will show up um, (laughs) probably in your car if that happens. Uh, So it's nice for that to be correct if it works. And yeah, quite often people forget to tell me, you know, I I always know what my client's name is, um, but quite often... They are not, even even if they actually are the artist, they might have a stage name that might be slightly different or they might have a quirky spelling or any of that kind of stuff. Um, or it might be the band name or it might be a compilation. You don't, exactly. you don't always have all the details if you don't ask. Exactly. And do you like that stuff on a text file or a PDF or just in pasted into the email? Uh, either is fine. Pasted into the email is usually um, the easiest, to be honest, because then it's, it's just right there. Saves me clicking and having another window open up. Um, the and yeah, the title of the album as well. Um, that's that's probably the one that most people forget. Um, which is it's not a big problem, but it's just another email. And if I forget to ask early on in the process, you know, if if you're up against a time crunch, it can slow things right down right at the the minute when you don't want it to. It's like, oh, I don't know what this album is called. Because a DDP only takes you know five or ten minutes to make, but if you don't have all the details, you can't finish it. So it's just kind of annoying to not to not be able to do it all at once. Exactly. Yeah. And and then, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, 10, 15 minutes to make, and then it has to upload, which could be another 15 minutes, half an hour. Um, and then somebody has to download it, which could be the speed of their internet connection. So yeah, in the cases where there is a time pressure, every little thing counts. So it's it's good to get as much of that as uh, sorted as possible. There is other metadata, but since we're, I'm kind of keeping these in the essentials category, um, we'll leave that just for the time being. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one I have on my list is they need to be lossless files. Again, it feels slightly... I, I imagine most people listening to this podcast will understand already that supplying an MP3 file or an AAC file or anything else is not acceptable or just... Uh, no, I think it's actually not acceptable. I mean, I, I know people who do master from MP3s. I never do, unless it's like some kind of you know rare bootleg and this is the only kind of copy in existence, um, that kind of situation. Yeah. So that means a WAV file, an AIFF, uh, a FLAC file, you know, I guess those three. I can't, there aren't many other common formats. And while we're at it, um, I think stereo interleaved. Sometimes people send me dual mono, you know, the left and the right separately. It's not a problem. It's just another step for me when I'm importing the files to kind of um bring those in and make sure and there's just that little extra chance that something might have gone wrong and the left and the right might end up slightly out of sync or all of those kind of things um and at the original sample rate would be the final Mm -hmm. kind of detail in the the sort of how to supply the files section you know people ask should i sample rate convert it to 44.1 or to should i upsample it any of that kind of stuff no you know no just send me the the raw files so that i have the closest to the original 
mix, or I have the original mix, probably, if it's a digital file. Um, and then I can handle the rest of that stuff later on. Uh, did I miss anything? Yeah, I think as far as all the, the technical aspects of the files, I think that's that's everything I can think of. And then there's the actual sound of the files. You know, make sure it sounds good before you send it to mastering. Uh, but then there's some sort of technical things like headroom uh, and things like that. Yeah, well, that's the next one on my essentials list is, uh, well, I've just written no clipping, which is yeah. what I mean by, what you mean by headroom. Um, so there are... But, but uh, also kind of, there's there's audible clipping, there's kind of accidental clipping or kind of unnoticeable. If there's one little spike that's a little bit above everything else, then I don't mind that because that's that's no problem to fix. But if the whole thing is kind of, I have one dB of dynamic range to work with, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, so so, so when I say no clipping, I mean no hard digital clipping. Um, and if anybody isn't sure what that means, they need to rewind and listen to the episode that we did that was just on. Did we do a whole episode on clipping? I think we did. We did. Um, Int intentional or otherwise exactly there 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 are degrees and types of clipping and it can happen deliberately or otherwise but yeah um we'll put the link to that in the show notes on themasteringshow.com if you want to check out that episode where we go into the subject in a lot of detail but just briefly back in the day when i was trained most of the masters came in on dat tape the little digital audio tapes mm -hmm. um smaller than cassettes and the guidelines we would give people there was don't peak above minus three. The reason for that was mainly because the metering on lots of consumer DAT machines was actually pretty unreliable. So it was possible for people to actually be digitally clipping what was going onto the tape without realizing the meter just like lots of meters would have minus three and zero. Um, and the fact that zero wasn't lighting up red for them didn't necessarily mean that they weren't accidentally clipping it. Um, and I still think kind of minus three, minus six is not a bad rule of thumb. You know, there's there's no yep. need for, for the peaks to be going up to zero in this day and age. On the other hand, there's no harm if they, and like you say, even the occasional over is not the end of the world. What you really want to avoid is whether the levels are constantly hitting up to zero and you may or may not be shaving off kind of a significant portion of the, of the signal um, accidentally at that point. It's not always going to sound disastrous, but but it, it's just something to be avoided. I like to get the stuff minus 12 to minus 6, that kind of range for the average level of the songs. Average peak and level, peak, yeah. Peak, average peak level, yes. Yeah, is a, is a, a good place to, to be. Um, and that, we can kind of come back and revisit that in the, a little bit later on when we're talking about the kind of, the stuff that's good to get right, but not essential. You know, if... Yeah. Pretty much if I get something that is constantly hitting zero, even if that happened because you put a limiter in the output chain, there's a good chance I'm going to get back to you and say, please, could you resupply this? Because I think I could do a better job with more headroom. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even if there isn't audible or actual damaging digital, hard digital clipping going on, it's good to avoid that kind of thing just so that you don't make your mastering engineer's hair stand on end. So that's it for me for the essentials. Um, unless anything else occurs to you. If they're doing anything on the master bus, I do like to have the option of the uh, uncompressed, like a flat 
master bus version of their uh, their mix, especially if there's limiting on it and stuff like that, and they're they mixed through a limiter. You take that away and send only that to the mastering engineer. He's not going to get you what you're used to hearing. But if you send them both versions, then he'll know that, you know, this, we want this, but more refined sort of thing. So I would agree with that, definitely. Uh, but but I would put that in the kind of, that's nice a good thing. thing. That's, yeah, yeah, that's a nice to have. That's a good thing to do. Definitely a great idea. Um, but if we but, get everyone that listens to the podcast to do that, then it's a good start. Okay, let's put everything in the essentials, <laughs> and then we'll never have any problems with anything that anybody sends us again. For sure, uh, it's it's that's a utopia, a dream. Um, <laughs> okay, so I have a couple of of boring ones which are just kind of details. Uh, I mean, the first one is is the metadata that you mentioned, as well as the track and the title and the artist details. There are other things that can be put into a DDP image that, if you want them, need to be supplied to me. So. ISRC codes, International Standard Recording, maybe I can't remember what that stands for. <laughs> Which is based; those are that's a unique number here in the UK. You get it from an organisation called the PPL, who handle all the copyright stuff. Um, there's a different organisation in the US. Do you know the name of it off the top of your head? Hang on a sec. Okay, this is where we do an edit to make John sound really cool and knowledgeable. Yeah, International Standard Recording Code in Canada. You get it from SoCan. In the U.S., you would get it from uh, your uh, royalty organization. So ASCAP and BMI should also get you that. And um, in Canada, they're also administered through AVLA, Audio Video Licensing Agency. And do you have to pay for them in Canada? Because here in the U.K., they're free, or they were last they time free. I checked. Cool. I think in the US there's a there's a fee you to, you pay maybe to just to register initially or anyway you can get the ISRC codes well, that's a redundant codes because it's got a C on the end of it which means codes but but it's very important that the artist gets these and supplies them to the mastering engineer the artist has stuff to sign it's it's their responsibility to get this done before the mastering it's the artist or the label yeah yeah um if yeah. you're if you're signed to a label the record label will usually do that but and the point of it is that it's a code that is unique to that song it begins with um a unique letter code that identifies the basically the license holder um and these codes can be automatically read from cds and from some types of files um if the stuff gets played on tv or radio which means that you automatically get your royalties they can also be stripped out, so it's a it's a kind of a very very lightweight form of copy protection. Uh -huh. I don't think anybody would ever want to trust it, but it's a good thing to have, especially if if it's free in the in the territory where you're releasing your music. Um, it's a bit of a wild west in terms of how they're assigned. So, for example, let's say you have a song that was on an album and then it later goes on a compilation. Sometimes people will give it a new ISR code if it goes on the compilation. Sometimes they give it the original. Sometimes they give it a new code if it's a different master or if it's a different mix, but not if it's exactly the same. It gets tricky. It gets tricky. It gets messy, but they, they're an option. You can have them on the CD, and if even if you're an independent artist, you can sign up, you can get them, um, and they're kind of a good thing to have. And the other thing that you can have is the barcode number. So if you have a barcode for the artwork on the disc, which is either a UPC or an EAN code, depending whether you're in the uh -huh. US or in Europe, that can be stored on the on the DDP image and therefore end up on the CD as well. Um, 
But I think both of those things are, are nice to haves rather than essentials. So I don't think anybody should lose any sleep if they don't have them, particularly not if you don't anticipate kind of getting major airplay, because that's where they, they really become most useful. And this but, is another thing that can delay the project. If the mastering engineer has everything except for the ISRC, they're going to wait two to three days for you to get that information to them so they can finish the project, get paid, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. No one likes that. <laughs> <laughs> it's Well, usually it's the artists who don't like that. Um, and again, it's the kind of thing that I try to always ask early on in the process. I know some engineers have kind of really uh, sophisticated um, kind of submission forms that they set up so people can do everything online and all these questions get asked which is a really good idea i tend to handle it by email i try and always ask these questions early on in the process but every so often you forget and you only ask at the last minute and they suddenly they either go oh what are those oh yeah we've got to have those or oh yeah i completely forgot and at that point it again can hold things up which you know is is annoying if that happens at the end of this show i'm definitely making a template to help with these sort of questions and I can just paste it in whenever someone's asking me about mastering. Very yeah. cool. Save me a lot of time. Because <laughs> it's it's the same questions every time. It is. Basically. Right? We should make that a PDF and offer it to people as a download. Oh, like I have time for extra work. <laughs> <laughs> we could get people to sign up and give us their email address in return of it. And then we could spam them with all kinds of stuff. No, never mind. If we do that, that's something that we could definitely put onto the email list that we already have for The Mastering Show at themasteringshow.com slash subscriber. There's like a that. very good point. Yeah, no, it's not slash subscribe. It's just themasteringshow.com. But it's a big box in the top right-hand corner. You can't miss it, folks. Um, and the other advantage of being subscribed to that list is that you get all of the links embedded when you get told about the podcast just there waiting for you. So you don't even have to go back to the website. How convenient could that be? The other thing I have here is uh, just how to supply the files, um, which again, people ask me. I'm quite happy to get the files zipped up. Every so often I get somebody asking, does uh, using zip or stuff it or some other kind of uh, data compression on the files cause any problems? And the answer is no. You know, if, if it's a compression format that's used for moving computer programs around and one byte of them goes wrong and the computer won't work anymore you know those they're incredibly reliable those formats and the great thing about them is more often than not if a zip archive gets transferred and corrupted it almost certainly won't decompress so that's an instant clue that there's a problem with the transfer which is a good thing to have um having said that For sure with bandwidth these days it's no problem getting raw files either and pretty much any method you like to submit them to me i like dropbox um, we transfer is fine. Some people use Gobbler. Th the only thing I would say is please give it in to me in some kind of format where I can click once and the whole thing will download. <laughs> I don't particularly want to click on 12 or 15 song titles in order to get the album. Just sending a zip with everything is the way to go for me uh, because it's always just one click to download. One click to download, then you can yeah click to unzip, drag it somewhere on your hard drive and you're done. Um, and you have that added security of knowing that if it doesn't decompress, then you probably need to download it again or get it resupplied. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the techie details. You got anything else? Yeah, there's a couple other things, kind of common problems with mixes that I receive for mastering that can just stand a, a, a double check before you send. 
Uh, things like sibilance control, so using a deesser on the vocal and the vocal reverb. I think that is the number one thing that I return mixes back to the mixer to get fixed before mastering, because it's something that's really, really hard to fix in mastering. It just jumps out of my speakers so much that I, I just hate it. Once you hear it, it's like, it's so obvious, but yeah, just put a deesser on your, your reverb returns. Default setting usually works, <laughs> but it, it makes it sound so much better. Yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. I mean, I it's it's interesting. I'm not that sensitive about DSing. Um, there is an exception, which is that I mixed a Deep Purple gig, and Ian Gillen has the most intense sibilance you can imagine. I literally had 20 dBs of gain reduction happening on his vocals, and it was still too sibilant. Um, well, on that gig with whatever mic it was he had at that time. Definitely DSing is something that's better done within the mix, if at all possible. Uh, you, yeah. you can get decent results. There are some super expensive hardware units that can get acceptable results at mastering. But even so, I would prefer personally that it was, you know, because you just basically any kind of DSer is going to be ducking ideally a certain portion of the frequency range. Um, and if you're yeah. doing that on a stereo file, it inevitably means everything else that's in that frequency range at the point when it's happening. So, you know, it either has to be you can't get it aggressive enough or you have it super fast, but then you becomes more noticeable or it's slower and then it kind of softens other stuff like hi-hats and drums and stuff. The sucking it out of the side channels just when the vocal's going for the reverb is going to make it sound less wide and, and stuff. But if you do it on the actual reverb track in the mix, it makes a big difference. Exactly. Um, so I agree with that. Um, we've now moved into the the kind of, I would say, the nice-to-haves, the stuff that it's, sure. it's good to get right rather than um, essential. And while we're talking about the the kind of the overall sound, we could briefly touch on the loudness. This is something that John mentioned at the end of uh, our last episode, the one where I interviewed um, Bob Ludwig, um, which is just what the loudness levels should be when you're mixing. Um, uh -huh. So I don't think we need to go into any kind of great detail, but... As always, the answer is you want it balanced. It doesn't want to be too loud because if the, the levels going into the file are too loud, you probably have too much clipping or too much limiting or more than I would like if I'm going to work on it to get the best possible results. Um, and if it's too quiet, then the chances are, well, either you're just um, not making effective use of the signal to noise ratio, although with 24-bit files, that's not a huge deal, but also you may not be using enough dynamic control. It can actually be as much of a problem to have something that's too dynamic as not dynamic enough. And it's not ideal to be doing too much heavy lifting at the mastering stage in that respect. So, you know, I think maybe at least half of the episodes of this podcast that have ever been must have talked about dynamics and loudness. So I really don't think we need to go any further into it from there, but it's definitely worth mentioning. Another thing on my list is phase issues, particularly overly widened uh, mixes and things like that. How often do you run into things like that? Fairly often. Um, it's really interesting. Great minds are thinking alike because the next thing written on my list is correlation, which basically means the same thing. It's it's how wide is the mix. Um, again, we don't need to go into huge detail because we did a whole episode on, on stereo width, stereo imaging. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes if you want to go back and check that out. This is, I would say this is a gray area because there's one thing that for me personally is a, is a red flag but that sometimes people have told me to go ahead with anyway, which is where they have 
an instrument that is intended to be in mono that's actually an antiphase. So let's say you have a keyboard sound. You know, it's a left and right stereo image, and one of them is polarity inverted. So one of them is in complete antiphase with the other, which means that if you hit the mono button, anything that was mono in the original signal is going to disappear, um, which basically means you're going to hear a different mix if you listen to it on a mobile phone speaker or you know a, a, one of the a digital DAB speaker radio that only has a mono playback. And for me, that's at the point where I'm kind of firing off an email saying, did you know this has happened? Was this intentional? Um, but sometimes people either don't have time to fix it and resupply the mix, or they say, yeah, we did that to make it sound wider. Yeah. Or, you know, kind of we liked that effect or whatever. And in that case, you know, that's a judgment call and I go with what they ask me to do. Yeah. It can sound really weird in stereo as well, though. You know, yes, oh, it totally. sounds wide, no, it but really does, it, yeah. it inverts your head. <laughs> turns your head inside out. It it does. No, it, it, once you're tuned into that sound, it's like, why is why is this so weird? Was it's like one speaker is pushing in as the other one's pushing out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get a certain degree of that naturally, especially in a kind of big uh, reverberant spaces, which I think is why people sometimes do it and think that it makes things sound big. And if you if if the monitors aren't perfectly set up, or as particularly if you're not sitting right in between them you wouldn't necessarily notice it in that situation. But you, yeah. you pretty much always hear it if you are right between the speakers or if, and particularly as is important these days, if you're listening on headphones or earbuds. Um, so the one of the things we talk about in the episode on stereo image is using a correlator, which is a, a, a type of meter that kind of gives you an idea of the stereo image and a clue that one or other element of your mix might be polarity inverted and having this effect because uh, sometimes you get the whole mix right and that just sounds bizarre but more often than not it's one thing in the in the mix because there was a dodgy cable or somebody hit polarity invert by mistake whatever that might you know whatever the reason might be um and typically what you'll see is that the the correlator will be kind of reading a half plus one whatever it normally does and then just suddenly it'll duck right down into the into the negative into the into the red uh -huh. and that is often a clue that there's something weird happening the other thing you can do is uh i think in that same show i mentioned that there's um a correlator that comes with the new gen visualizer metering package um which was a feature request from me he said smugly um <laughs> but it, it that gives you correlation by frequency and the nice thing about that is you can actually sometimes see the correlation going way down into the red, just, you know, for example, in the sort of maybe the 100 hertz region, if it's if it's the bass guitar, say. Um, yeah. And that can be a clue. So listen out for those things and check those things on the meters. I've picked it out on drums. Sometimes I've heard that the drum overheads, uh, one of them is polarity inverted. And I've picked that out in mastering. And definitely something you can't fix in mastering, so... You get that. It sometimes happens on the toms if you have a, step, a stereo pair on the tom mics. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it can happen in the overheads just because of the position of the mics. Um, it, it'll you, sound you, you, wide, but it, it's not going to sound... You're going to lose a lot of thickness when you go into mono. Instead of get bit, getting bigger, everything kind of... Everything that's working together, enhancing and, and sounding fuller in, the, in mono, it doesn't do that. You lose all the symbols. 
In my well, mind. and it, it can also fight everything else that you're blending in. You know, if you've got yeah. overheads and they really are one of them is polarity inverted, then, for example, if you bring the snare up in the center of the image, chances are a good portion of that snare signal are going to cancel out yes. with what's there in one or other of the channels and you're going to get a kind of weird hollow or just thin, weedy sounding snare where it should sound big and full. So, yeah, you're kind of going back to, to mixing stuff of always check your polarity, always fine-tune the phase. Um, but it's it, you know it's worth kind of keeping an ear out for that when you're doing the final listen before submitting stuff to a mastering engineer or kind of moving on to the mastering stage yourself. Okay, so the next one I have on my list is something that you mentioned earlier on, which is just have a great mix. Again, it sounds too simple to be worth saying, but that's kind of the point of this episode is to is to try and list all of those things that might be too obvious um, and might not. And I guess the why would you not have a great mix when you're submitting it to mastering? The answer to that is because people think that they can fix it in the mastering. Yeah, they expect a really big transformation. Exactly. And sometimes you can get a really big transformation and sometimes you can fix things in the mastering, but that's never the ideal situation. You know, the the ideal situation is always to do as little as possible in the mastering so that you can spend more time on all of the tiny little details and really, you know, get that last 5%. Whereas if you're, if the thing is only at sort of 70 or 80% to begin with, then you spend all your whole time bringing it up to 90, which could have been achieved back in the mix. Um, now, what makes a great mix is, of course, a whole other, you know, we can't possibly specify that, but, you know, you just need to make it as good as it can possibly be. And I think my favorite technique for achieving that, use reference tracks. How do you know if your mix is as good as it can be? You need to compare it to other stuff that you think sounds great, which can be a pretty painful process, I can say from personal experience. Um but, you know, is so valuable. And the the key thing you need to do if you're if you're going to do that, if you're going to use reference tracks, is to make sure that you loudness match them when you do. So most stuff that you're going to compare your own mixes with is going to have been mastered. Lots of it these days is going to have been mastered really aggressively. So it's going to be a lot louder. Um, so to get a fair comparison, as you'll undoubtedly know if you've listened to any other episode of this podcast, uh, you need to measure the loudness probably with an LUFS loudness meter and reduce the level so that your mix is at the same level as the master. And then you've got a more even playing field. Um, I guess at that point you might want to experiment with a little bit of extra compression and limiting to make yours sound more like the mastered thing. Personally, I don't do that. I, I would like my mixes to stand head and shoulders against the mastered stuff, even though it hasn't been had that extra processing done which is even harder to achieve but you know the higher you set your standards the better results you're going to get i always think do you do that do you use reference tracks not enough <laughs> the the stuff i mixed last week i was just thinking as you were saying that i didn't check the references don't tell anyone I, you never heard it from me um the i mean, I mean it's funny because i constantly recommend this i hardly ever do it myself um, but that's just because it's kind of built in. At this point, it's kind of internalized. I've since spent so long listening to all of this stuff. Having said that, if a client supplies me with a reference, then it's essential to listen, right? Because uh -huh. then they've given you very clear um, uh, instructions. And I think that was, uh, I kind of segued into 
reference material as a way of knowing when you've got a great mix but actually it kind of it's a standalone point in itself in terms of submitting things to the mastering engineer if your goal is to have your music sound like x tell them what your references are what what it is that you would like so that they can at least have that in mind when they start to work on it you know that's that's a really valuable thing in particular you know if like say if you want it to sound like something really loud they can have a conversation with you about whether your mixes have the potential to be that loud without any kind of negative side effects and do you really want that and have you you know considered all of the the pros and cons of that process for example um incidentally just going back to your point about bus processing i would agree that if if you're using lots of bus compression or saturation or any of those kind of processes i would like the option of a file that doesn't have those things on there personally i'm less bothered about eq um mm-hmm. you know when i'm mixing quite often you know if i'm just listening and thinking oh well i need to add some bass to the to the guitars and to the keyboards and to the vocals it's well why don't i just put an eq on the stereo bus and add it globally and then i don't have to do it individually on all the tracks I don't really see a reason or a benefit for removing that when you send it to the mastering engineer because that's how you want the mix to sound. Um, yeah. I think I can think of an ex- kind of an exception to that. But yeah, in terms of other kind of bus processing, then I think definitely supply the two, as you suggested, so that, so that the engineer has the option. You know, it, it may well be that we think what you've done sounds fantastic and we go with that. Um and even if, from for me, if I get supplied something, I'm thinking, well, I can hear what they're going for, but I don't think they've quite got there. I will always end up getting closer but better than what they had. That's my goal, anyway. Yeah. Um, and if I can't, then I would go back to the version that they supplied. Um, so yeah, reference tracks can be can be really helpful. On the other hand, I once had somebody give me a list of reference tracks that included. Pretty sure it had Metallica, Fleetwood Mac, Steely Dan, and something else. It wasn't Jean-Michel Jarre, but, you know, an incredibly eclectic selection of tracks for what was basically a straight-ahead metal album. Um, And whilst I thought that all of those uh, suggestions sounded fantastic in their own way, only two or three of them were relevant in any way to what I was working on. I don't know whether you get that. (laughs) Yep. No, I've had that, but usually it's for starting a mix. I'm like, wow, I don't okay. have any of these references in, in <laughs> these in these plain DI tracks. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's good. To, it's good to have heroes, but they need to be relevant heroes. Another thing in the nice to have, but I can probably fix it if I'm forced to, um, is really clean heads and tails on the files. So your fades in and out should not have any noise, shouldn't have any clicks, uh, bumping, rumble, or anything like that. It should sound clean. It should just be a little bit longer than you want on the actual CD to give us the option of where to fade things and crossfade over overlapping and all those kinds of things without having to go into RX and notch that stuff out because it's annoying. Thank you. I had that in my list. And we skipped over it because we went straight in for the Sonic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, especially now we have RX because, you know, um, it's fairly rare these days that I get anything that's kind of really noisy. Although sometimes people have used, you know, one of the analog 
modeling plugins say and then applied some sort of decent amount of compression to it at some stage so there is a fair amount of hiss in there um it, it's for me it's more my kiss not really plugins causing the issues rarely it it happens but the, the song should start from silence not not uh you know minus 40 db yeah exactly and if it, it, but if it does have noise in there um i mean another one could be amp hum or amp buzz you know um yep. if you've got a, got a guitar amp that's cranked in those cases quite often i like to leave that stuff in but sometimes it's distracting um you know if it, if it catches your attention more than the music and it's kind of it doesn't feel like it's there as a statement then i think it's nice to be able to reduce it and if you're going to do that and you want to do it well you need a clean sample of the noise so that you can use rx or whatever it is effectively um so yeah absolutely I mean, I personally don't mind having, I even quite like to have a bit of studio chat and kind of thumps and bumps left in because um, it's pretty easy to to take those out if you need to. You know, sometimes people will try and, let's say the drummer drops his sticks or, you know, there's a chair creak or somebody coughs or something um, in, the, in the fade out at the end. Um, sometimes people try and do an edit themselves to get rid of that because they don't have RX or they're not kind of, it's not in the, their mind that that's a, a technique they can use. Um, and quite often that can sound, you know, kind of odd or unnatural because doing an edit in, say, the decay of a piano or or the ring out of cymbals or whatever, it's possible, but it's quite challenging to get right. Whereas with RX these days, you can take that stuff out pretty much transparently most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I prefer to be able to do that stuff. And exactly in terms of crossfades and things. I mean, if they're musical crossfades, then it's nice to have again a kind of a guide edit. Yep. Um I prefer that to people kind of giving time codes. Sometimes you have something where they say, "Okay, so 20 seconds after the drums drop out, I want to hear the first chord of this track which is about 5 seconds after the synth drone comes in." And it, you know, even when you can figure that stuff out and get it so that you think it's right, it kind of there's always this level of doubt in your mind whereas if you have an mp3 copy even if it's just the, the transitions where where the the tracks are crossfading so you can hear exactly what it is they want um and quite often i'll i'll stick that in the playlist and just line the waveforms up and it just you know saves time and no i know that i'm doing what the artist intended in that case um which is is a good way to work so yeah absolutely tops and tails and that leads me on to the final one that I have on my list, which is um, please don't send me stems. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that. If you want to send stems, you can, but it... Okay, so first I should say what stems are for anybody who... We, we touched on it briefly very early on, and I think maybe the topic deserves its own episode at some point. It came um, up on Twitter recently for me as well, so... Okay, yeah. so we should definitely add that to the list. Um but yeah, the idea of stems is instead of supplying a stereo mix, you would supply four, say, stereo mixes, four or five, which might be drums, keyboards, guitars, vocals, and then the bass as a track. And you you line all of those tracks up, put them in a DAW. When you play them back, you hear exactly the same as the original mix, but you have the option of individually controlling each of those um, aspects of the song for I mean, that that can be it can be fun um and it can be really useful in some cases but for me that's blurring the boundary of mixing and mastering too much as well as extra bandwidth in terms of file sizes and extra time in terms of 
putting things together and getting the signal routing right and all this kind of stuff, um, I really prefer to have a stereo mix, the best mix that you can get. That should be what I'm doing the mastering from. And then using stems is just every so often in order to fix some specific problem, you know. There are other situations where stems are needed, such as interactive projects. Oh, completely. Video games yeah. and stuff like that. And, and if we're doing a show on stems, we should do that then, not yep. now. Agreed. Um, and there's also the native instruments format. We could talk about that um, perhaps. So yeah, there's, there's a whole kind of other topic, but specifically related, but you know, it's not a big deal, but every so often somebody says, kind of assumes that I'm going to want the stems um, and thank you very much, but no, not unless I ask yeah. for them. Um, or, or they say, can you, can you master this? I'll send you stems. And you're like, eh, okay. And then it's, it's uh, you have to comp vocals and and it basically it's it's uh, it's unmixed. <laughs> that was exactly what I was going to say. Some, somebody says, "Can I send you stems?" And they say yes, and they send you, and it's thirty six tracks. It's, it's it's raw it's raw files and yeah, stem and raw files are not stems. No, exactly. <laughs> raw raw files are raw files, and they're they're channels or tracks. They're not stems, and yeah, and not ready for mastering. We don't do that, or if we do, we charge you ten times as much, and it takes way longer, and. <laughs> all the rest of it so um yeah uh, good i think we have covered all the main points there there's going to be something that we've forgotten there's bound yeah, probably, to be probably but that's, that's what pretty happens. good yeah if you if you, if you guys can hit all of those points on that list you're going to be in really great shape um either if you send your stuff off to a mastering engineer or if you're mastering yourself your own music and that means we get to have a mastering maxim I, can't, I don't think we've had one for a couple of weeks, have we? No, we haven't. The mastering maxim is absolutely essential as far as I'm concerned to get the best results out of mastering is communication between you and me. Um, you know, talk to your mastering engineer. For me personally, every so often somebody will send me a song and they're like, okay, so I sent this to uh, to get mastered and I'm not happy with it. What do you think? And you know, I'll take a listen and I tell them what I think. But my first question is always, did, did you tell them that you weren't happy? And I'm always amazed when people say no. Um, and, and that's already too late in the stage. You know, if the first thing that you say to the mastering engineer who's working on your material is, I don't like this, that's just way too late. Um, I mean, I guess I'm shooting myself in the foot here. I don't need an essay from anybody about mastering things. You know, it's um, if, if you send me an essay, I will read it probably not until after I've mastered at least the first song because I like to go in with a clean slate and just do what my instincts tell me and nine times out of ten when I read the notes they agree completely with what I've done which is great and if not then I can tweak and adjust but to have no communication at all is really tough yeah I, I just want to have a conversation with my clients you know it's it's their music I want to make it better in their opinion, as well as in my opinion. So some kind of, I, I would never send my stuff to a mastering service where it's just like submit your tracks and get stuff back. And I'm always amazed that people will and that they think that that's okay. And I, do, I mean, it's bizarre. I've, I've heard that there are engineers out there who, who, who genuinely don't want to know, you know, that's, it's like, yep, just send me the stuff and you get it back. And if you don't like it, I'll charge you extra to do alterations. That makes no sense to me. Um, so yeah, I don't, uh, I don't want to spend hours talking to every client about every project, um, but I'm, you know, 
more than happy to exchange. I, I want to exchange a couple of emails where we can make sure that we're on the same page and or, you know, phone conversation, whatever it is, whatever your preferred mode of uh, communication is. And for me, that's it's just part of the the whole thing. You know, it's it's not me coming in and saying this is what you should do with your music. Be happy. It's OK. This is what I think. What do you think? Um, you know, that's how it would be if you came for an attended session. Um, and that's how it should be, even if it's in a virtual or an online space. Do, do people talk to you too much or not enough? It really depends on the client. Um, okay. Yeah. Client and deadlines. And yeah, I, I think I, it was the last episode or the one before I said I don't get a lot of revision notes. Or I don't get enough sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. For, for my own personal development. It's scary to open up an email, especially if it's been a little while since you've heard from the client uh, after sending the first version of the masters, and it's it's ten pages long. <laughs> that that reminds me of another thing that is scary, which is, um, and another reason I like communication is is when you 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 know you have all these great conversations to begin with. You do the mastering, you send off the 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 test copy or whatever, and then it's like tumbleweed. And nothing yeah. happens for maybe a week or two. And eventually you kind of send out this little email saying, hey, I hope you got the master and everything's okay. And you're like, oh my God, they hate it. I'm going to have to do the whole thing from scratch or they've gone to somebody else. And then eventually you get uh-huh. an email back and says, oh no, it was fine. Yeah, I just went to France for a couple of weeks or, you know, um, I would, you know, we, we've been playing it in the car and I played it to everybody else and, you know, it's it's all good. And at that point you're like, oh, thank goodness. But on the other hand, could you not have said, because I've been sick. <laughs> <laughs> sitting here kind of thinking oh no do they like it do they not like it um so yeah it's a little bit of communication at every stage in the game is ideal um and i think we've done quite enough communicating on this episode <laughs> already uh, how often do we achieve our goal of a 30 minute episode almost never never <laughs> not since i've been here no we need to think of a really really simple um i've got it we could do online mastering again and just say, don't do it. And that would be really quick and easy. Unless you're hiring an engineer, then it's still online mastering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Automated. Oh, you've, you've ruined it already. It's, it's like, that's gone over a minute. Thank you very much, John, for uh, contributing and reminding me of the ones that I'd forgotten. Yeah, no problem. And thanks everybody for listening. Please head over to themasteringshow.com to pick up the show notes. Thanks to Kaylee Law for supplying our music. Uh, check out John's site, reaperblog.net. Um, my site is productionadvice.co.uk. Please tell your friends if you like this podcast, found it useful and interesting, and head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It's a great way to help spread the word, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I've run out of words.